in the book of Malachi. I titled the message, The Last Message of the Old Testament, Part 2. Last week was the last message, Part 1. I'm not very consistent, you see, in my sermon titles. But this is the last of the last. I would have us read together in Malachi, the third chapter. I'd like to read the first six verses of that chapter. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. God speaks through his prophet, saying these words, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit like a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them like gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside from the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If God were a changeable God, undoubtedly he would have wiped the nation of Israel from the face of the earth. The only reason they continue is that he does not change. He is true to his word and to his promise. We come to the days of the post-exilic prophets. Haggai. Zachariah, Malachi. Their ministry was to this ragtag bunch of refugees, and that's what they were. And I hope the images of the last few weeks, as you have watched refugees streaming out of the land of Kosovo, gives you a little appreciation of what's going on here. Here was a people that in mass had been snatched out of their dwelling land and taken far away to a land called Babylon. And there they would remain for some 70 years until God raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia, and gave them permission to return home. And they've come home. A dispossessed people, a people with hardly any resources, any riches, and the task is monumental. They are to rebuild the temple that has been destroyed by the Babylonians, and they don't have much resources to do it with. They don't have much manpower. As I said, they're just a bunch of refugees. They're fending for their own lives. They're trying to figure out how they're going to eat. And in the middle of this, they're supposed to rebuild this great and grand temple. They lay the foundation, and the work lays idle for a while because the people become so discouraged. 
discouraged because of the lack of material, the lack of manpower, and also discouraged because things were just not quite living up to their expectations. You see, the prophets during the time of captivity had prophesied that, yes, they would come back from Babylon. They would come back into their land and they would build this grand and glorious temple. And there would be one David who would reign over them and the kingdom would be established. And folks, it ain't happening. They lay the foundation and the people began to shout with praise. But some of the old folks, the old fogies, we might call them, the old folks who had seen that first temple, who had seen it in all its splendor, the one that Solomon built in the heyday, in the apex of the nation of Israel. They had seen it in all its glory, and they knew this thing was nothing. What they were building was going to be like an outhouse compared to that great and grand temple that Solomon had built. And so they began to weep and cry. And the scriptures say that from afar off you couldn't tell. You heard this sound of the people and you couldn't tell if they were praising and happy or whether they were sorrowful and crying because the cries were intermingled and mixed. Things just weren't looking right. And so God sends the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to stir up the people. To cause them to continue the building. A prophecy to Zerubbabel, their leader, who's their governor, telling him that his hands have begun the work and his hands will finish it. That it won't be done by might or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Those words directed to Zerubbabel to encourage he and the people to continue building this temple. And then there's that word from Haggai that it's still a little while, yet a little while. God says, I'll fill this latter house with more glory than the former. It's a little while till he comes. Now, a little while to us and a little while to God is two different things. It's going to be about 500 years before this one comes, whom Haggai is speaking of. That's a little while to God. But it's still going to be a while. In other words, continue building. Complete this structure. You're still under the law. The end of the law has not yet come. The end of that age has not yet been fulfilled. It's still a little while until he comes who was prophesied. Now Malachi, on the other hand, deals with the condition of this people. We have noted already that spiritual ignorance abounds in the land. Proverbs chapter 1 in verse 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And notice the description of these people. In our text, did you notice Malachi 3 and verse 5? Look at the last phrase describing the people who are going to be judged. God says they fear not me. Now the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, what are you going to have? You're going to have ignorance. And you will see that ignorance spread throughout this little book. God will make a statement concerning the state of the people, something they're doing wrong, and they will reply about like a teenager. Now, I'm not picking on teenagers this morning because we've got a bunch of teenagers here and they'll probably rise up in rebellion. But I do remember being this way when I was about 16. You know, Mark Twain said when he was 16, he couldn't believe how ignorant his father was and When he was 21, he was amazed at how much his father had learned in five short years. Well, there is that little process that you go through. And I remember questioning my father. He would make a statement, well, why don't you do this? And I would look at him like he didn't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. 
And that's how the people here are responding to God. God will make a statement. You do this. And they're saying, what are you talking about? Wherein? That word wherein or wherefore appears throughout the book. Every time God says, you're doing this, this displeases me. And they're saying, we didn't know. Ignorance. We don't know what you're talking about. Why, we didn't do that. And the whole book is filled with such. Their problem is a lack of the fear of God, which exhibits itself in so many ways. Believing that they can serve God by just going through the motions. Believing that they can give God less than their best and he won't notice it. Believing that they can live before God any way they doggone please and he won't care about it. They are ignorant of the most basic spiritual lessons of all. It's what our Lord told the woman at the well. That we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Now the truth part, they pretty well learned by this point. You remember their problem, the reason they went into captivity in the first place is because they were infatuated with idolatry. Every strange God that came down the pipe, they built an altar for him. In the land of God, in the place where God said, I'll set my name, they wound up in Manasseh's day putting an altar inside the very temple itself. Well, we don't ever find, once they come back from the Babylonian captivity, we don't ever find them indulging in idolatry again. They seem to have learned that lesson. They're going to worship the true God, all right. They're going to do it by the book. But there's another area. They must worship God in what? Spirit and truth. In other words, it's not enough to just go through the outward form if your heart is not in it. Now, the truth part they've learned, but Malachi is attacking this other side, that they must do what they do in spirit. And so, on the one hand, here is a people who calls themselves waiting on the appearance of the Messiah, wishing for his coming, looking to the coming of the Messiah. And Malachi is saying, do you know what you're waiting on? Are you really ready? For Messiah to appear. You see they have this romantic notion. That oh if the Messiah would come. Everything would be humpty dumpty. Well everything would be fine. You know Messiah is going to come. He's going to take care of us. We're going to be out of this situation. He's going to establish this kingdom. And man we're going to be on top instead of on the bottom. And Malachi asked this question. He's going to come alright. But who will abide the day of his coming? Are you ready for the Messiah to come? Notice in chapter 3 and verse 1, he reiterates the certainty of Messiah's coming. He says, behold, he shall come. The Old Testament, from one end of the other, shouts to us, someone's coming. I mean, from the days of Adam... When God said he would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. To the day of Abraham, when God said he would send the seed through Abraham that would bring blessing into all the earth. And Isaac and Jacob, his sons, he's described as the scepter that will not depart out of Judah. He's the 
rod out of Jesse. He's the branch out of David. And then we have just had this wonderful prophecy back over here in Zechariah chapter 6 where Zechariah is told to take the high priest. His name is Joshua. Actually, Bob and I are talking about this. His name in Hebrew would be said Yeshua, which is nothing more than the Hebrew form of the name, Greek name, Jesus. The high priest's name was Jesus. And Zechariah is told to take Jesus, this high priest of his day, and bring him into a house, close the doors, and he's to put crowns on his head. And then he's to say to the witnesses, Behold the man whose name is the branch. There he is. You want to see what he looks like? He's almost here. He's coming. And there he is. He's, he'll be a king and a priest. A priest who reigns on a throne who will build a temple. And even his name is the same. The clearest declaration of all, shall we say, in the Old Testament of how to identify Jesus when he comes. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. Furthermore, in verse 1, he tells us that he will be preceded by a messenger. I will send my messenger, says God. And he shall prepare the way before me. Three times in the New Testament. Matthew 11 verse 10. Mark 1 verse 2. Luke 7 verse 27. Three times in the New Testament this verse is quoted. And all three times this verse is applied to John the Baptist. And then get ready. This person is going to appear after the forerunner comes and prepares the way. And notice how he is described. He is a man because he's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the descendant of David. But notice how it is said here, this messenger will prepare the way before him. No, God says he will prepare the way before me. God's coming. That when this person comes, somehow mysteriously, when this man comes, God will come. When this man comes, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Well, indeed, Jesus did suddenly appear in the temple. We have the account of Anna and Simeon. They're standing in the temple today when Jesus was 40 days old. Mary and Joseph bring him there to perform for him the sacrifice that was necessary under the law. What an amazing spectacle that day. Here's a, just an ordinary Jewish boy showing up 40 days after his birth, just like every other Jewish male baby that was born that same day was being brought to the temple. And yet, Simeon, this old prophet, goes to Mary and snatches this child out of her arms and says, Now I can die. Now I can die in peace, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Or perhaps his coming to his temple is not to be understood in the sense of that building, but perhaps in the sense of his body. For John tells us in his gospel that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they said, you're nuts. It took 46 years to build this building. What do you mean you raise it up in three days? And John adds this word of commentary in John 2 verse 21 that he spoke of the temple of his body. So in other words, the promised one is about to come and you think that's going to solve all your problems. You think everything's going to be just humpty dumpty, but who will be able to stand 
in that day. You see, there is one other major area of ignorance that abounds among the people of Malachi's day, and it's this, the nature of Messiah's ministry. What's Messiah going to do when he comes? Two areas that are brought to our attention here is that, first of all, Messiah's ministry will be a purging, cleansing ministry, and secondly, it will be a separating ministry. Notice how these are described. First of all, notice that his ministry is described in terms of purification and cleansing. He's going to be like a refiner's fire or like fuller's soap. Now, fuller's soap would be the equivalent in their day of what we call lye soap. The refiner melts down metal, let's take gold for an example, and seeks to refine it. For what purpose? Does he just like heating up metal? Does he just like melting stuff? Is that how he gets his kicks? What's the refiner doing? Well, he's heating the metal, turning it into a liquid so that the dross might be brought to the surface so that the dross can be drawn off and the remaining metal far more pure than it was when he began the process. He is removing out of the metal the impurities, that which is not gold. In the Old Testament, for instance, Jeremiah talks about Israel of his day, that God keeps refining and refining and refining, looking for the real stuff, and there's no real stuff there. It's all fool's gold. It's all fake, false, you see. But here the Messiah will come, and he will be like a refiner, or he will be like fuller's soap. Imagine the old days uh, in Mexico on some of our trips down at Vega del Sol, seeing some of the ladies down there at the riverside literally beating their clothes on the water, trying to literally beat the dirt out. But the idea is, is that this purifying and this cleansing process is necessary to remove defilement and contamination and neither are very pleasant to the thing being cleansed. Fire is not very pleasant. Scrubbing is not very pleasant. But it's necessary. Now John the Baptist came saying, I baptize you with water. But he who comes after me is going to baptize you with spirit and with fire. Now, the idea embodied in that is that John is saying, my baptism is preliminary. My baptism is for the outward man. It's to wash your body. It's to get yourself, as it were, presentable for the one who's going to come and do the real washing. For you see, the real cleansing that needs to be done here is not of your body. You know, your body may be filthy this morning. I, you know, I, nobody I run into yet seems to fall in that category. But baptism may wash the outward body, but it's not going to do for you what must be done on the inside. Messiah, when he comes, will baptize you with spirit and with fire. I'm going to wash the outside. He's going to wash the inside. <clears throat> My baptism is preliminary. His will be full and complete and final. So John's call in his day was to all of Israel to come down and be washed in the Jordan. He's basically standing there on the banks of the Jordan and saying, Okay, all of you filthy folks, all of you who are defiled, all of you who are contaminated and stink and are rotten, come down. And take this first step, the outward step, to prepare yourself for the coming of the Messiah. 
Many of them did. But many of them didn't. Many of them said, who are you to say I'm filthy, defiled, rotten? Here we begin to run into this little embarrassing fact that it's the duty of the gospel minister to stand here in the pulpit and look out to his congregation and say you're a bunch of rotten, filthy, stinking sinners. And you say, well, I don't like that. I guess not. Because you're a rotten, dirty, filthy sinner. I mean, that's the problem. It's basically, it's the Christian minister's duty, and that's what John the Baptist was doing, was standing there saying, here is your your state before God, and it's a lost estate, it's a ruined estate, it's a defiled estate, and here's the first step. Oh, this won't do it all. I just baptize you with water. But it's to get yourself ready for he who will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. I'll cleanse the outside. He's going to cleanse you from the inside. But those who refuse to take the first step, the preliminary step, the outward step, are showing themselves then as not suitable candidates for that inward washing. That inward thing that... We speak of as regeneration. The washing of regeneration, Paul writes Titus. Or Paul, or Paul, when he says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? He gave himself for it, but gave himself for it to what? To cleanse it. To, to wash it with the washing of the water of the word. No, not of physical H2O, but to wash it in the spiritual sense. To prepare it for himself, a glorious, spotless bride. In other words, he came to cleanse his bride. That she might be presentable for himself. Now that's what John the Baptist is doing down there on the banks of the Jordan River. And these who are rejecting his call for the outward cleansing are most certain to reject the call of Christ for the inward cleansing. You'll notice here that this is specifically addressed to the Levites. Verse 3 says he's going to purify the sons of Levi that they might be offered unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. We saw last Wednesday night that the Levites, their service had become sloppy. They said, oh, the service of God, what a weariness it is. You know, this is boring. Just the same thing over day. You know, get up in the morning, sacrifice. Get up tomorrow morning, sacrifice tomorrow. The same thing all over again, every day. They're bored. They're tired. Now, they're faithful. They're not in the service of some other God. They're there in the temple doing what the law says they're to do, but their heart's not in it. They've dragged their bodies there, and that's about all you can say. Inwardly, they're griping and complaining. What a weariness this is. Messiah is going to come and purge the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Turn quickly to Acts 6, verse 7. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back. But this little verse has always been somewhat of a puzzlement to me why this is thrown in. Acts 6 and verse 7. In the earliest days of the church's history in Jerusalem, we have this statement, Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of the Lord, or the word of God, increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests 
were obedient to the faith. A large number of the priests, of all people, the priests, the priests were about as corrupt a bunch in Jesus' day as any we would find. The Sadducees, these liberals of their day who denied Basically, anything supernatural in the Old Testament denied the resurrection from the dead, denied the existence of angels. The priests were mainly of that class, of that sect. And yet here we find that of this great number believing in Jerusalem, the priests make up a large proportion of them. Well, his ministry, when he comes, is going to be a purging ministry. And that means, secondly, it's also going to be a separating ministry. I'll not spend a whole lot of time here. But the Messiah is going to come and he's going to separate between people. In Malachi 3 and verse 18, we have this statement, Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. Going into chapter 4, Malachi 4 verse 1, For behold, the day comes that shall burn like an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch, but unto you that... What? Fear my name. Shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall grow forth, go forth and grow up like calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, the Israelites of that day had the idea that Messiah is going to come, and boy, aren't we going to be in business then? I mean, we may be low man on the podium bow right now. You know, the economy's not booming right at the moment. But you just wait till the Messiah comes. And you watch us then. We're going to be exalted. We're going to be the head, not the tail. We're going to be the lenders, not the borrowers. We're going to have the wealth of the world. The whole nations are going to flow unto us. Oh, Messiah is going to come all right. And he's going to separate He's going to separate between the true and the false, between the righteous and the wicked, between the faithful and the unfaithful. And in the New Testament, when we see Jesus appear upon the scene, he does exactly that. John the Baptist says, get ready, folks. He's coming. And his fan is in his hand. His fan is in his hand. You see, in those days, they didn't when they threshed their grain, they didn't have these big thrashing machines, combines. They got the grain, cut it down with sickles, and they took it in a very big thrashing pit. And they either used their own feet or perhaps the feet of an oxen to smash it and crush it to separate the, the grain from the hus. And then they would take these huge fans And they would stand and they would wave these fans and they would create wind, you see, that would blow away the husk, blow away the chaff, and leave behind the seed. And John the Baptist is saying, he's coming, folks, and his fan is in his hand and he's going to separate, he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. He's going to drive the chaff away and it's going to be burned up. And he'll gather the seed into his garner. He's going to separate. Jesus himself said, Think not that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to draw battle lines, and sometimes those battle lines are run through cities, and 
through families and some cases right down through the middle of a bed between a man and his wife. There's going to be a division in Matthew 25 and those parables that Jesus speaks of his coming. We have the ten virgins that go forth to meet the bridegroom. All ten characterized as virgins. All ten expecting to be admitted when the bridegroom comes. And yet at midnight the cry is made and five get in and five don't. Because they had no oil. Now you thought they had oil. Everybody assumed they had oil. They had lamp. You'd have thought they had oil. But it was revealed at the midnight hour. They don't have it inwardly. What they profess outwardly. And they are excluded. While others are admitted. We have the parable of servants. Three servants. All characterized by the name servant. But two are found faithful and one. What's the judgment? Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into utter darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two are praised, two are found faithful, but one is excluded. Do, do, do I need to go on? Do you get the sense of what Jesus' ministry is all about? That his very presence was going to be a great test to the nation. Oh, there's some in Malachi's day that fear God. Malachi 3.16 says, They that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. And the Lord hearkened to them. And the Lord wrote down their names in a book and says, In the day when I make up my jewels, you'll be one of them. But many, many were going to be excluded. Now, I realize that you're sitting here wondering what in heaven's name here on the scene I am not in the shoes of these people, so what in heaven's name could this have to do with me? May I just point out that they were waiting on Christ's first coming. We are waiting on his second coming. And may I say that the attitude that perverted their, <clears throat> pervaded their day also pervades ours? Is it not thought among you and I who are Christian, and I'm speaking in that all-inclusive sense of all who would call themselves Christian, do we not have the idea that, well, you know, things are pretty rough right now. Things, you know, we're sort of on the bottom rather than on the top. We don't have a lot. The wicked seem to be doing pretty good. We seem to be in a lot of trouble. But you just wait. You just wait till Messiah comes again. He'll set it straight. He'll show who's top dog. Then he'll elevate it. Then he'll exalt us. Our problems will be over when our Messiah comes again. May I remind you of Revelation chapter 6 that when John sees the heavens depart as a scroll and mighty men and chief men of this world heading for the hills, heading for the rocks and the caves, crying for the rocks to cover them. Do you know what they're saying? For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? They quote Malachi. He's come. But who can abide the day of his coming?
Who will be able to stand when he appears? And you say, well, Brother Mark, I, I stand pretty good. I mean, I'm a member in good standing here at Grace Bible Church. And I show up every Sunday and I got my Bible with me and I give my money. My friend, they were going through the motions. That's the problem. They were doing everything by the book, but their heart wasn't in it. And we see these judgments that are being pronounced against them. God saying, I'm going to take your blessing and turn it into a cursing. And here's why. You offer polluted sacrifices before me. You lay an offering on my altar and it's got three legs. It's torn. It's been attacked by the wild beasts. It's ripped in pieces and you offer it to me. It's sick. My friend, when we are in the business of laying spiritual sacrifices before our God, and how many of them have three legs? Two legs. Our hearts have in it. Sick. Colluded. Oh yeah, we're here. Our mind is a thousand miles away, but our body's here. And we expect God to bless us. A God who is spirit. Who expects to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Oh yeah, we've come to praise the Lord, to serve the Lord. Oh, what a weariness it is. That's what the priests were saying. Boring. Yeah, I'm here. And I'm making myself go through the motions. I sing the songs. I bow my head and we pray. And I sit here and make an attempt to listen. But oh, what a weariness it is. What drudgery. Do you realize that's what they were saying? God says to them, these sickly deformed things that you're putting on my altar, offering to me, offer them to your governor. See if he'll be pleased with you. Say, governor, I've got this little sacrifice. I've got this gift for you. I, you know, I appreciate the way you rule over us. And in, in response to the way, the good things you've done for us, I want to give you this little token of my appreciation. And you hold him up a lamb. Ripped and torn, deformed, sick. How does he take it? As an insult. And God says the same thing to the people in Malachi's day. How dare you? Oh, and you say, yes, we'll do. We'll serve the Lord. We'll be faithful. If, if we don't have anything better to do, you know, if nothing else conflicts. Why didn't, why didn't you tell the IRS that Thursday? Well, I'll mail that check in if I feel like it. You know, if I can get around to it, if it's not too much trouble, I'll send that check to you. Why didn't you say that to the IRS? Because you feared them. Devotion, lukewarmness, 
slide. Because we don't fear God. Oh, you say, Brother Mark, John told us we wasn't supposed to fear God. Well, I know we're not supposed to fear him in that tormented sense, that fear that torments. I tell you often that when I was a child, I loved my father and I still love him to this day. But my friend, I feared him. I wasn't scared of him. But I'm scared to disobey him. I respected him. I stood in reverence of him. And that's the fear that we're talking about. I won't dwell on this. Jerry apparently will have a lot to say about that this coming weekend. But here's the preparation. Here's the situation. We have a romantic, misguided view, I believe, of what's going to be like when Jesus comes. When we all get to heaven... We sing, do we really know what we're talking about? Are we ready for that day? And do you really even want to go to heaven? Well, you say, of course I do. I don't want to go to hell. Well, I know nobody does, but do you really want to go to heaven? Do you really? I mean, for a few moments on a Sunday morning, you find it all that you can do. To force yourself to attend to the word of God and to the praise of God for a few moments on Sunday morning. My friend, what do you think we're going to do in heaven? Forever and ever and ever. If you find you have no fellowship, you have no affinity for the people of Christ here on earth. That you like to run with the wild crowd. My friend, who are you going to run with up there? What makes you think you're going to be happy there if you're not happy now, if you don't have a little taste of heaven in your soul right now? What in the world makes you think that you'd ever be happy there? I've seen people come and sit under my sermons, and I understand it's my sermon, so that may explain lots of things, but oh, utterly Miserable. They couldn't be more miserable if they had thumb screws on their fingernails, if they were undergoing Chinese water torture. But my friend, I admit, my preaching skills are horrible. My, my, my message is unclear many times. My applications miss the mark. But oh, my friend, if we don't have a little desire for these things now, however imperfect, if it's not our goal for more, more of Christ. Think something's wrong. Because that's what you're going to get there. More. 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 Don't be ignorant. Don't be foolish. Don't deceive yourself. Oh, do you love Christ? Have you fallen in love with this one who gave himself for you on that cross? Or you say, preacher, I've heard that, I've heard that all my life, grew up hearing that, I've always heard it, I'm getting tired of hearing that. Oh, tired? Ladies, do you tire of hearing uh, your husband fell in love with you? Guys, do you tire? You know, in Pittsburgh, they don't ever tire of hearing about the immaculate reception. You know, when Franco Harris caught they tell over and over again, they never get tired of it. They just never get bored with it. Same old stuff. Never get bored. My friend, if we're bored with the old, old story, it just could be that we've never really heard it at all.
may God come in power upon us today. May He deal with our hearts. May He grant that we receive this message, the message long ago given through Malachi. And may we be found in that number that feared the Lord, of whom God said in the day that I make up my jewels, I remember you. Let us pray. Father, move in power upon us. Let us not kid ourselves or deceive ourselves that we are something when we are nothing. That we have something when the fruits of having it are absent from our lives. Father, we thank you that life in Christ is a free, undeserved, unmerited gift. Oh, Father, remind us this is the gift of life. And it shows itself by living. It expresses itself by exhibiting Christ. Love for him, love for his people. Father, may we be honest before you today and ask ourselves, do we have such a love? Do we have a yearning in our hearts for heaven? Do we love holiness and that which is right purely because it's right? Have you worked in our hearts? Have you washed us on the inside with the washing of regeneration? Have you taken away that stony heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh? Have you written your law upon our heart and given us your spirit to cause us to want to please you in all that we do? May we be faithful and honest before you. Lord, we can fool each other. We can put on our charades, our masquerades. We can hide and we can pull the wool over each other's eyes pretty easy. Father, we can't fool you. You know us. Nothing we do is hidden in your sight. So may we, Father, be honest, transparent as we stand before you in naked honesty what we are in your sight. May we not pretend any longer. May we be through with lies and self-deception. And if we are lost, if we are outside the kingdom of Christ, oh, Father, give us a heart to want to know that fact. If we are deadly and terminally ill, sick with sin, then, Father, don't keep that information from us. Cause us to face it. That we might seek a remedy in Jesus Christ, your Lord. May we not be content with anything less than that which is real and that which is true and that which comes from his hand. Speak to our hearts now, Father, as we pray. In Jesus we ask it. Amen.